0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to this week's episode of The Quarterdeck. This week in our reading of our book, With the 1st Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, No Greater Friend, No Worst Enemy, we continue our story as we follow the 1st Marine Division as they headed into Iraq out of Kuwait. This week we move on into Chapter 5, talking about the bridgehead over the Tigris River and how the Iraqis are going to react to the opening gambit. In our hero highlights this week, we will take a look at the heroism and the story of Private First Class Wesley Phelps, United States Marine Corps. Drop and give me 25. I'm the gunny. It's it's time for the gunny. The, gunny, the, gunny gunny. Yeah. the quarter deck. Lights, 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 get online right now. You got 109876543210. 1, <laughs> Hello, my bunch of knuckle-dragging, beer-drinking, hard-charging devil dogs. You're listening to The Quarterdeck. I am your host, Miguel, The Gunny Signs. Get off the bus! I the do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend. The, the Constitution of the, 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 the United States. Against all the the enemies, foreign and domestic. The Quarterdeck. Here we are another week into February. And man, the time is flying. I got to tell you guys, as I look out my back window right now, I continue to see the construction of our house that's being done. Now, the house on the outside pretty much looks almost the same as it was that I explained it to you guys last week, with the exception is that they have all the foam insulation on the outside. Now, just in preparation for them to come put the brown coat that they do on the outside. Now, don't let the, the name brown coat confuse you. All that is is that cement-looking thing they put on the outside. Why the heck would they call it a brown coat? Can they come out with just a concrete coating or something to make it so much easier for people to understand what the hell it is? And The next step on the outside is going to be for them to come out there and put the stucco and blend everything together in preparation for them to paint. And then after that, it's on with the roof tile to ensure that it's in place and it's ready to go. Now, the inside... The inside has been moving along. Today, they're going to finish up the insulation all on the roof, the outside walls, the garage, and a couple other rooms that we wanted to go ahead and have insulation in the walls. So that will be done today. So here I am anticipating the inspection, either coming later on this afternoon or first thing tomorrow to go ahead and get them ready to go so they can go ahead and start doing the drywall and then I can actually start seeing more progress of the house getting done. So here's keeping my finger crossed that they move along a little bit faster and they go ahead and do a lot of work this month. And who knows, let's keep our fingers crossed and maybe, just maybe, they might get the house down by my birthday at the end of the month. You know, that's here wishing, you know, hopefully it's done, it's completed so we can go ahead and get the heck moved back in. But hey, you never know. So this morning I was sitting there strolling along, you know, I go through all my social media sites, my TikTok, my Instagram, all those things. And actually it was on Facebook on an Instagram reel that popped up. I mean, it was a Sergeant Major in the Marine Corps, Sergeant Major Reese. Without even questioning it. Hey, it's Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps. Of course, I'm going to try to click on it. I'm going to try to listen to see what the hell he's got to say. And today his main topic was the barracks. The way that the Marines lived out there in the fleet. And what he wanted to show us was the actual barracks that were down there in 8th and I in Washington, D.C., for the Marines that are down there in the barracks. Now, he was talking a lot about how the Commandant promised to make sure that everything was nicer for the Marines to be able to move into and live. And this is the 2030 plan, he called it. He called it by 2030 that they wanted to have all brand new barracks throughout the Marine Corps to allow the Marines to have a nicer Area for them to live into. Every Marine, including me, have stayed on different bases in their barracks whenever you go TAD or anything like that. Now, I got to tell you guys when we go to the other services' barracks, you notice how well that they have it made for them to have the barracks that they have. I mean, they have brand new furniture. Some of them even have maids that come to their room and clean their room for them on a daily basis. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine us as Marines when we were coming into the Marine Corps as young PFCs, Lance Corporals, whatever, having somebody come into our room, make our bed, clean our bathrooms, all those things. One of the main things that he talked about was that they wanted to ensure that all the Marines across the Marine Corps throughout the whole entire fleet had a nicer and newer barracks. He wanted to make it a point and show was the 8th and I barracks down there in Washington, D.C. Now, the outside, I can tell you guys, was all brick and it looked new. It was like a brand new building that they had over there in 8th and I. As soon as Sergeant Major went through the door, he bragged about how as soon as you went in, there was this whole area for Marines just to go ahead and hang out. It was basically like a lobby area with two big screen TVs on both sides so they can actually sit there and watch TV and all those things that they wanted to do if they were not inside of the rooms or if they not have a TV inside of the rooms. The next thing that he showed us is, is, was what if it's, if it's raining outside, Marines need something to do. So he walked over to the other side of the lounge area where it was and there was a full gym in that area as well. He said, one of the priorities that I wanted to make sure that the Marines are going to have inside of their barracks is a way for them to continue to PT even if they can't go outside or they don't want to go to the gym. So we're going to provide a full set gym for them to be able to go ahead and do whatever they want to do inside of their barracks. Now, that's a good thing because Marines, you know, they do want to go work out and all those things, but sometimes they don't want to just walk all the way to the gym or get in their car and drive all the way out there. So to me, this is a good way to get them to actually, you know, PT some more. Because I know that for all of us, when we were deployed down there to Afghanistan or to Iraq, we had our own small little gyms there in our compound, and the Marines used those way more than going out there to the gyms that was provided there at the FOBs or the camp that we were located at at that time. So that's a great idea for them to have. Then They went and walked down the hallway, and they have a full setup of a kitchen there in the barracks for the Marines to be able to use two full-size refrigerators, a stove, a microwave, a table for them to sit at. Now, the one thing that I wonder is, okay, there's one stove for them to cook. How many Marines are going to be living in these barracks? If there's a lot of rooms, there's going to be a lot of Marines. How many Marines are going to be able to use the stove for them to have in those barracks? Is there going to be a kitchen on every deck of the barracks? Is it a two-story building, three-story, four-story? So... To me, it would make a lot more sense if there was an actual kitchen in every single deck of the barracks. That would make a lot more sense. It'll be a lot easier for those Marines that live in that area to use the kitchen instead of going all the way downstairs. And now it's going to be a congested area. And I mean, I don't, don't get me wrong. How many Marines are actually going to cook? <laughs> a lot of Marines just prefer to go out there and get junk food or whatever, order pizza and stuff. But hey, you never know. It's available. So they might use it a little bit more for them to have it there. And then he showed us the laundry area. Good God, this thing looked like a freaking laundromat. It seemed like it had washing machines and dryers for days. A lot of stuff there. So, hey, what the heck is Sergeant Major America telling you? Go wash your clothes, nasties. Your camera should not be smelling like straight ass when you put them on the next day. So they're providing that for you, for you to be able to go out there and actually wash your clothes to make sure that everything is ready for the next day for you. And I mean, how much easier do Marines want it nowadays? They have the fluff and dry camis that they put on nowadays. All you do is put them in the dryer. They come out, they're wrinkle free. For goodness sake. I mean, me growing up in the Marine Corps and all of you guys that grew up in my generation, we had to iron and starch out our camis every single night to ensure that they look squared away the next working day. And let's not even getting to talking about the boots. These Marines do not have any idea what it means to spit shine a pair of boots for inspection. But that's a conversation for another day. So let's move on to the barracks here. So the laundry room, gym, the kitchen. And then he went ahead and took us into the actual uh, rooms where the Marines are going to be living. Now they're going to have single rooms and double rooms. Now his goal is to ensure that every corporal and every sergeant have their own room in these barracks because he believes that they should be have their own privacy and be able to have more things since they are non-commissioned officers in, in the United States Marine Corps. The room that he showed us though was a double room and he showed us the, the racks that they had. And I mean, these racks, I guess they're a version of a coffin rack kind of, and they just kind of fold up and then you put stuff underneath it and then it can fold right back down. And then there's a little headdress that they have with shelves and stuff and everything for the Marines to put whatever the hell they want to put on there. Now, Good idea to be able to have all that storage area. And not to mention, they also have a walk-in closet that they can walk into and hang up their stuff for them to be able to have everything organized the way that they need it to be. Bathrooms are basically a joint bathroom with the room next door. So they just basically share it. They lock the door on one side. They use the restroom, do what they got to do, handle their business, and then carry on along the day. Now, one of the things that he made it a point to talk about was That now the way the barracks are now, there is a barracks manager, which is a a sergeant or a staff and CEO that's in charge of the barracks. And it's his sole responsibility to maintain these barracks for the Marines. And if there's any issues that's wrong with the barracks, they got to put in a work request. And that's sent down to maintenance on base. And then when they have the time, the maintenance will come on base to the barracks and go ahead and fix whatever issues that they have. Well, let me back up a minute. I almost forgot the most important thing. That he mentioned in the video of the barracks. All right, hold your breath. Okay, that's long enough. Check this out. Growing up in the Marine Corps, since I came into the Marine Corps in 1995, the AC and the heat have always been a freaking issue because the barracks are either too hot or they're too damn cold because they're controlled by one thermostat that the people on maintenance on the base come and they set the thermostat And that's the temperature that it's going to be. Now, the thing that sucks about it is that when it's starting to get cold, they don't turn off the AC till freaking whenever they've decided they want to do that. So now they turn the heater on. The heater is, you know, it's working throughout the winter. It works okay. Either your room is burning up or it's still kind of cold. So it's either a sauna or a snowstorm. You take your pick. During the summer, they don't turn on the air conditioning till about a month or so, maybe two sometimes that you're into the summer and then they go turn the AC. On these barracks. Now, a lot of the barracks, especially on board Camp Pendleton, they don't have air conditioning in these barracks. That's going to change, he said. They're going to have air conditioning. But here's the thing every individual room in the barracks will have their own thermostat. Oh, I can just feel it now. Chilly AC when I want it. So they're going to have the opportunity to go ahead and control their own temperature in each room individually. How great is that? I mean, I wish I could go back into the Marine Corps and just be back in the barracks just for that, because that's something that we never experienced when I was growing up in the Marine Corps. So that's a plus. I mean, that's great to me. That's the best news that I heard. So thank you, Sergeant major Ruiz. You're making the barracks life so much better for these young Marines. Wish we would have had this when we were growing up, and I know you do too, because living in the barracks when we were coming up, my goodness, this is a major, major breakthrough. Okay, now let me get off my soapbox and go back to what the was talking about. So another great point that he made was the the staff sergeant or the sergeant that was in charge of the barracks, the ones that was handling all the maintenance, all that stuff and everything else, they're going to go away. They're going to go back to actually do Marine work throughout the day instead of just spending there the whole entire day in the barracks and putting all these maintenance requests in on time. They're going to hire a Department of Civilians to be able to maintain the barracks and make sure that everything is good to go there at the barracks. He didn't mention anything about anybody having maintenance or or maid service in the barracks. So I'm pretty sure the Marines are still going to be required to maintain the barracks, field day, and all those things that they need to do. So that's a plus, but I'm going to actually look into that because I don't know. I wonder, are Marines going to get a maid service? And now my mentality is if they have maids, how many Marines are going to get married with these maids and move the hell out of the barracks? I don't know. Maybe that's just me thinking, but who knows. But outstanding, Sergeant Major, outstanding brief on what is to come for these Marines. And I'll tell you what, Marines, those of you need to be completely grateful because you are having it so much better than all the Marines before you have ever had. Look forward to these barracks that are coming up here for you guys in the next couple of years and take care of them. Take care of the furniture. Take care of the nice things you have because that's why we get it. We gotta take care of our nice things. Are you looking for a photographer who can capture the most important moments in your life? Look no further than Miguel signs Photography miguel signs is an award-winning photographer with a passion for capturing the beauty and emotions of weddings family portraits and special events with years of experience and a creative eye miguel signs will create stunning images that you'll treasure for years to come whether you're looking for a traditional wedding album a unique family portrait or a professional headshot for your business miguel Science photography has the expertise to bring your vision to life from the initial consultation. To the final product, Miguel's Signs will work with you every step of the way to ensure that your images reflect your unique style and personality. Don't settle for mediocre photographs that simply document an event. Trust Miguel Science Photography to create timeless images that capture the essence of your special moments. Book your session today and experience the magic of Miguel's Science Photography. Visit Miguel Science Photography online at miguelsciencephotography.com to see examples of his work and schedule your appointment today. What we're going to do right here is go back, way back, back into time. Thinking back at everything that we've gone over with the division and everything that they have done. My goodness, I got to tell you guys, it brings back so many memories of all the things that they are talking about that the division was going through and what they were doing, the lack of sleep, all those things that they went through. And it was like, just like yesterday, just like yesterday being there as the division was making their way from Kuwait and heading all the way into Baghdad. I mean, the sleep deprivation is a pain in the ass. Those of you that have stayed awake for long periods of time can completely understand with me. I mean, who hasn't stood duty in the barracks, right? Who hasn't stood duty in the barracks and been there with an NCO that always tells you, okay, yeah, whatever, go ahead and have the first shift and I'll get up later or wake me up, blah, 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 blah. They sometimes don't let the young PFCs and everything get enough sleep and stuff and everything when they have duty with them. For me, it was completely different. You know, I would always want to stay on duty and I would not wake them up until basically I was tired which was until like two or maybe three in the morning. Then I would finally wake them up and they could have the last couple of hours. So that way they would be able to get some sleep because, Hey, I needed them to be productive the next day. I needed them to make sure that they were able to work and handle their business. So yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard not getting enough sleep, especially when you're out there doing certain things, spending a lot of energy and everything throughout the day. So that's what the division had to go through and stuff. And man, for us, it was freaking ridiculous too. We get, didn't get no sleep for the first three days. We were just pretty much walking zombies, doing everything that we possibly could to ensure that we try to stay awake until that first refueling station that we talked about, that we were able to do that. But let's move on into chapter five. Now in our reading of our book with the first Marine Division in Iraq of 2003, no greater friend, no worst enemy, and talk about how the bridgehead over the Tigris now was going to be so productive for the division in order for us to get across that thing. And how the heck were the Iraqis reacting to all this? (laughs) What was going through their brain housing groups during this time? So let's go ahead and get on with a reading of our book. By securing the western bridges over the Euphrates River, the U.S. 3rd Infantry Division had set the stage, expanding the bridgehead and moving rapidly across the river. Blue Diamond had successfully bypassed the entire Iraqi 4th Corps and was now in position to exploit its success all the way to the Tigris River. Although the division doubted that the bypassed enemy divisions had the capability to attack, it nonetheless kept a close watch on the exposed eastern flank. From 23 March until 3 April, the division's operations focused on maintaining the tempo of the attack and rapidly gaining a position on the north side of the Tigris River. Historically, this terrain between the rivers in south-central Iraq had been a no-man's land. Defenders had typically had tried themselves to the key water and land approaches to Baghdad, leaving attacking forces to the mercy of the terrain, and weather as they slog through the swamps of the Mesopotamia, the 1st Marine Division would now face the same terrain that had stymied attackers for centuries as it threaded its way between the ruins of Babylon and the Garden of Eden. Now, the Iraqis, they left that pretty much alone because they knew that it was so much marshland and all that stuff. And, man, we had a heck of a time getting our vehicles through there. But because the vehicles can be put into such low gear... We were able to continue to push forward and continue our attack as we made it through there. And I think this was what they they were counting on, the division being slowed down so much or them not being able to move through there because they're in their minds, they were like, there's no way they're going to go through there. They're not going to make it through there because they're never, ever going to get across. But hey, hello, knock, knock. Here we come. So let's take a look at their reaction. What the heck did they do? What were they going through? As 1st Marine Division looked to exploit its early success, the Iraqi regime also began to consider its next moves. The regular army south of the Euphrates had disappeared in the face of the overwhelming firepower of the MEF. Now, the enemy chose to show a different face as the division resumed its attack to the Tigris River. In Anazaria, Task Force Tarawa still dealt with the defensive effort of the preliminary forces operating inside of the urban area. The vigor of the defense surprised some, as the Shia Muslims of Anazaria had shown a keen resentment of the regime prior to the commencement of the hostilities. The Iraqi RA 11th Infantry Division had been garnished near Anazaria for this very reason. The Iraqi 11th Division was known to have had a difficult time controlling the population and was expected to rapidly surrender when confronted by the U.S. 3rd Infantry Division attack. Perhaps this very fact caused the enemy to reinforce the city with significant numbers of strong-willed Fedayeen fighters, reportedly in to the persistence of Al-Han Samad Majad, Saddam Hussein's cousin, in their midst. The infamous Chemical Alley was one of, the, one of Saddam's key advisors and had murdered thousands of Iraqi civilians, many with chemical weapons. As this was one of the first major urban areas secured by coalition forces, the preliminaries had not yet tested the defeat that would de- deepen the enthusiasm later. Not fully understanding the strength and resolve of the Marines who opposed them, The parliamentary fighters remained motivated to fight in the Anasaria urban area. Another possible reason for their enthusiasm may have been their initial success against the American forces, including the capture of the U.S. Army soldier from the 507th Maintenance Company when their convoy had become lost in the city. The Fedein were so confident that they did not destroy the eastern Euphrates River bridges inside of Anazaria urban area. While the MEFs and Task Force Tara battled for control of the city and intact bridges, the main effort of the 1st Marine Division bypassed the city to the south and west over Highway 1 corridor. The events in Anazaria were but a harbinger of the regime tactics that the division would shortly encounter. There were a few conventional defenses between the Euphrates and the Tigris River. But the Saddam Fedein Bath Party militia and reconstituted remnants of other military groups launched a new defensive strategy based on human wave attacks, ambushes, and treachery. Collectively referred as paramilitary fighters or regime death squads, these fighters demonstrated a zeal for combating Americans, that their conventional brothers in the South had not. The paramilitary fighters proved treacherous and ruthless in their attacks and were despised by the well-trained Marines. To the paramilitary fighters, violating the laws of war became a shield they would use to exploit the Rules of Engagements, or the ROE, of the well-disciplined Marines. They set up their command posts and operating bases in mosques, stored their weapons in schools, wore civilian clothes to hide amongst the civilian population and forced the local population to fight the Americans through immediation and murder. The Saddam Fedein was the core of their resistance. These loyalist forces sent down from Baghdad used intimidation to force the local populace to resist. The Fedein entered the towns in the south, taking advantage of the existing regime control structure and Ba'ath party offices. The Fedayeen had been trained to resist to the death, and often demonstrated an emergence to do so. They were joined by equally committed foreign fighters drawn from several nearby countries as a misguided jihad. The irony that many of these religiously motivated fighters would show such loyalty to a regime that had been systematically repressed, the religion freedom of Muslims was apparently lost in those groups. Not known for their enlightened intellect, the core group of fighters filled out their ranks through the press gangs and terrorized the local inhabitants, kidnapping young men and forcing them to fight. Stories abounded, black pajama-clawed Fedayeen bursting into local farmers' homes and putting a gun to the head of their children. The poor conscripts were given minimal training by the cadre staff and put into fighting positions and kept there at gunpoint. The mix of the dedicated loyalists and poor conscripts became readily apparent on contact. These core groups were through fighters who had no fear of death and continued to attack beyond military reason. The conscripted component, on the other hand, looked for an early escape or surrender. As soon as their Fedayeen miners had been distracted or killed. The treacherous tactics... Of the paramilitary reflected their training in the misguided loyalty to the regime. One method used by the paramilitary was to pretend to surrender to gain close approach to the American forces, then quickly drop their white flags and open fire. In a variation of this tactic, trench lines of paramilitary fighters would often wave white flags with U.S. aircraft were overhead, then quickly resume firing when the aircraft had passed by. Posing as civilian beggars for food was another tactic used to gain close approach before opening fire. Still, other paramilitary fighters were reported using local women and children as human shields. In some cases, the Fedayeen took up position in civilians' homes, forcing the families to remain in the line of fire. Since these paramilitary fighters had been sent to the south from Baghdad, they had no loyalty to the local Shia populace and did not fear the collateral damage an American response might cause amongst the locals. In many cases, armed men would open fire, then fade into the crowd of civilians, escaping the firepower of the Marines. In setting ambushes, the Fedayeen would often assign a cadre of hardcore members and help lay a heavy weapons fire, mortars, and positions for their conscripts. This cadre would not only coordinate the ambush, but also would ensure that conscripts stayed in their post. Although some labeled these dedicated fires fanatics, most were well-trained soldiers fighting and in a misguided cause against a liberating force whose motivations they could never understand. The Iraqi military had once been a professional, well-trained, conventional force. These soldiers had been eliminated over time. As the character of the Iraqi military had undergone a significant change, the Iraqi military was now a force of intimidation and operated against its own populace as the greater part of its mission. The thugs and bullies that made up the new military class in Iraq had a simplistic, almost childlike, Understanding of warfare. They understood intimidation and murder, but did not understand maneuver, fire support, or logistics to any great degree. When this facade of a military force was conformed with the crushing realities of integrated fires and maneuver, it crumbled to dust almost immediately. The uncon- unconventional response, however, was more complex. Many of the Fedayeen and jihad fighters had been convinced that the Americans would not fight. Their handlers had told them repeatedly that the American warrior on the ground had no courage and that the Arab manhood would be sufficient to make them cowardly Americans run away. Many of them believed and found out too late that this was not the case. When these overconfident fighters ran into U.S. Marines, they were in for the biggest and the last surprise of their lives. To their target, the Fedayeen found the Marines liked to fight and fought with the moral and physical superiority driven not by arrogance, but by confidence, skill, and courage. The Marines were here because they wanted to be here. There were no one better at dealing death and destruction to those who would oppose them. So as we can see, there was a lot of fighters that were being brought in from different countries. And that's one of the things that we had to deal with because... We had no idea who was who. They were sitting there getting dressed in civilian attire, running into crowds of people in order to avoid them being attacked by the Marines. Now, because we were abiding by the laws of war, we were only engaging those that were engaging us. It made it a bit more difficult for us to understand and realize who were the ones that were actually firing at us from within the crowds. They talked about how they used women and children for shields. And man, I tell you, that was the hardest thing that we had to do because they used them for shields. And a lot of the times they use the women and the children to come in to the area where the Marines were or you know where we were located at some kind of control point or stuff like that. And they would be completely... What's the word that I could use so you could understand? They were wearing freaking suicide vests And they would have the kids have that underneath their robes and the women would have that as well. So it was very, very difficult because we knew that we had to take care of the situation. But they were using this cowardly way to be able to engage the Marines as they were bringing them in. So I think to me that was probably one of the more harder things that we had to do what we needed to do in order for us to ensure that we stayed safe. So, you know, yeah, is it a cowardly way? Yeah, it is. I mean, they were doing what they had to do because they didn't know what else to do. And that was because, just as they talked about, they brought the Fiti in and the Jihad fighters that were fighting now. They weren't even from that country. And the Jihad fighters that they had there, they were just basically brainwashed. They were people that were forced to fight for the country, and they had no clue, no idea what the heck they were doing. So they were just there. And, you know, unfortunately, it was no tactical education or no training or anything else that they were they had in order to be able to engage the 1st Marine Division. So I guess that was good for the 1st Marine Division, but it also made it more difficult because now we had to actually try to figure out who was who and who's the enemy and who was not the enemy. Hero, Hero Highlight Private First Class Wesley Phelps, United States Marine Corps. Wesley Phelps was born in Nefus, Kentucky on 12 June, 1923. He was educated in the Ohio County County kentucky elementary schools and graduated from horse branch high school in 1942 radio was his hobby and he had built some one tube sets deciding to turn his hobby into an occupation he went to school in Owensboro, kentucky for four months where he studied basic electricity then took a three month course in radio repair work at the lafayette trade school in lexington kentucky he followed that with studies in field radio repair work and radio repair work on aircraft receivers at the Johnson Pre-Frequency Modulation School. Although he was the sole support of his aged parents who owned and operated a 70-acre farm with his help, he was called up by the draft and was inducted into the Marine Corps on 9 April 1943 in Indianapolis, Indiana. After boot camp at San Diego, Private Phelps was assigned to the single battalion at the Marine Base in San Diego for one month and then was transferred to the Infantry Training Battalion at Camp Elliott, California. He successfully completed an eight-week course in the Browning Heavy Machine Gun 30 caliber and was classified as a heavy machine gunner. Private Phelps joined the 27th Replacement Battalion in September and left the United States on 23 October 1943, joining Company M, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines of the 1st Marine Division in December, just a few days before the unit left for the combat landing on Cape Gloucester, New Britain. After Cape Gloucester campaign, all machine gun companies in the division of which Company M was one were broken up and their personnel were assigned to rifle companies. In this shuffle, Private Phelps became a crewman on a light machine gun in Company K of the same battalion. He was promoted to Private First Class in April of 1944. After a so-called rest at Pavuvu Island in the Russell Islands, the 1st Marine Division left for the little publicized Peleliu Island operation. After 19 days of bitter and costly fighting, the night of 4 October 1944, found Company K strung out along the military crest of one of the Coral Mountains for which Peleliu is noted. With the Marines on the slope of the hill and the Japanese on the opposite slope, rifles became useless and a series of hand grenade battles took place over a period of several days. During the night of the 4th, the enemy launched a particularly vicious counterattack. Pfc. Phelps and a fellow Marine were in a foxhole when a Japanese grenade landed in between them with a large thud. Private First Class Phelps shouted, Look out, Shipley! Then unhesitantly rolled over on the grenade, taking the full force of the explosion with his own body. PFC Phelps was killed while PFC Richard Shipley received only a small scratch. The Kentucky farm boy had sacrificed his own life to save that of his buddy. Riot First Class Phelps was initially buried in the United States Armed Forces Cemetery on Pelulu, but was later re entered in Rosine Cemetery, Rosine, Kentucky. The Medal of Honor was presented to the hero's mother in Rosine, Kentucky on 26 April 1946 by the commanding officer of the Naval Ordnance Plant at Louisville, Kentucky. The, the Quarterdeck. Each and every single week when we continue with our reading of our book, man, it just starts bringing back so many memories, the smells, the sounds, and the things that we ended up having to do there while we were down there in Iraq. Now, a lot of those things, you know, we did what we had to do in order to ensure that we came back. And just like we talked about today, how those Fadayin, those jihad fighters, They did things that were nowhere near abiding by the laws of war that were put together for that combat or that war zone down there in Iraq. Now, they went through these tactics just as they talked about because, really, they didn't know any better, and that's just what they did because they were fighters that really did not care about the people that were there. They didn't care about the civilian population. And, you know, that was hard for them because they had to do what they needed to do because they held them at gunpoint in order for them to be able to conduct the operations that they wanted to. And of course they were fearful for their life for what they had to do. But, you know, they talked a lot about how the training hall that stuff was not there and that it had gone away with a lot of the people that had left the army from Iraq back in the days. And, and, you know, and whatever it is, what it is, we did what we have to do to ensure that we survived and we came back And the way that I look at it and the way that I always tell all my Marines is that it's either you or them. And I don't know about you, but I intend on going home no matter what. And that's just the kind of mentality that you have to have. And all of us that were there, we had that mentality. We had the mentality because we knew every time that we shot our howlers, we shot those rounds downrange. They were out there causing death and destruction because of what we were doing. And we understood that. And that's just the way that it was. And, you know, it didn't really matter. We were doing what we had to do to ensure the marine stayed safe. And that is what we had to do. Our here are highlights, man. Young PFC from Kentucky. Oh, yeah. Down there from the Bluegrass State. My state. <laughs> Where I graduated from high school. I was out there in North Hardin High School in Kentucky. Down there in Radcliffe, Kentucky when I graduated. So... It was nice to hear about a good old Kentucky boy and what he did. But again, like so many, so many Marines throughout World War II, he too jumped on a grenade in order to save the life of his fellow Marine right next to him. And I guarantee that that unselfish act meant so much to that young Marine because that Marine gave his life in order for him to stay safe and be able to continue to fight the good fight. As we move along here through the month of February, we're already in February 8th. Man, my goodness. And we just got done celebrating on the 6th of February my wife's birthday. So her birthday is out of the way. But tomorrow is my son's birthday. And actually later on today, we are heading out of here. We're going to go out there to Legoland to spend the weekend down there. Because that is what my son wanted to do for his birthday. So we will be on our way, hoping to enjoy some nice California sunny weather. But who knows? Who knows if it's going to be Sunday because we're looking at the weather report and it's been raining here in Arizona for the last past couple of days. And I guarantee you that that weather is coming down there from Southern California and making its way down this way. So i am keeping my fingers crossed that we have some nice weather and it's good this weekend. Remember to make sure that you follow us on our Facebook page, The Quarterdeck with Gunny Science. Go under, give us a like, a subscribe and follow us. Ask any questions that you may have. We'll continue to go ahead and answer these questions. And as we move along throughout the year, always remember to take care of yourself. Take care of your family. Reach out to your friends that are veterans to ensure they're doing okay. And if they need somebody to talk to, hey, give them a call. Just talk to them. Say, hey, what's up? How are you doing today? You look like you're having a great day. Anything helps. You'd be surprised what those little things will mean to somebody by just simply saying hello. So, until next week, enjoy the time with your family. Have a great weekend, and we will see you guys next week. So, until then, this is Miguel, the Gunny Signs, sounding Liberty Call. Oh. Get out the blast! I do solemnly swear. swear. I do I swear, swear. swear. That I the yes, The Constitution yes, of the state. No. state. No. Against all no. enemies, no. foreign and domestic. No. No. 好